listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. It's good to be with you again. Insofar as this is as good as it can get right now, I... I hope you're doing well. We are in our new house here in Tulsa. You can see we're we're still unpacking boxes all around me. And like that, uh, this sermon that I have to share with you this morning is only partially unboxed. It's still still coming together. But I think given the topic, it's fitting for me to share to share it in this kind of unfinished way. So I'm I'm going to jump right in and ask you to to bear with me through, through the process. So we are, as you know, continuing this series on following the leader, contrasting different leaders in the gospel with Jesus as the one whom we should follow. And this morning, I want to talk specifically about Pilate and the way in which he sets us a, a kind of negative example, an example that is a negative for the way we are meant to image Christ. He he gets it almost exactly wrong. But in that way, it is instructive because the Spirit can use stories redemptively in that way. So I, I want to read a bit from the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew's account of Pilate's story, specifically the moment Pilate encounters Jesus. And then I want to contrast Pilate with other characters in the Gospel of Matthew who come closer to engaging Jesus faithfully. So, without further ado, Matthew 27, verse 11 to 26. If you want to open your Bibles or click through to the Bible on your phone, you can read with me. Matthew Matthew 27, verse 11 to 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So, notice first, He asks, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. So Jesus responds to Pilate. He does not respond to the chief priests and elders who are also hurling accusations at Jesus. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. And he he stuns Pilate by not defending himself against whatever these charges might have been. Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted, a kind of peace offering. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? In other words, Jesus, who is being called King of the Jews. For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over, right? So Pilate's instinct is that these leaders have turned against Jesus because they're jealous of his popularity. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Notice this as well. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. For today I have suffered a great deal 
because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, the crowd says, under the pressure of these leaders, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the King of the Jews? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And so Pilate, in Matthew's account, essentially tries to reason with the crowd, and the crowd will have none of it. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, and that's a, another key line, when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. See to the crucifixion, the the, the the punishment of this man you hate. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. It's a, it's a troubling passage for lots of reasons, not least that this is a passage that many Christians in later years would use to label Jewish people as anti-Semitic, I mean, as anti-Christ, and, and it becomes the basis of anti-Semitism in the Christian tradition. As I said, it's not entirely unpacked, and I'm not going to edit that out. We'll see if Carol and Mikhail edit it out. Uh, I, I, I want to stress, though, the ways in which this is a troubling passage because of the way it's been received, but for this morning, I want to focus on the story of Pilate and, and these, these, these key moments that I think show the negative of a faithful image of God. But before I come back to this text, I, I want to talk for just a moment about this novel, which is one of my favorite novels, The Master and Margarita by... Mikhail Bulgakov, who's a Russian novelist. It's a it's a wild novel, true. I mean, if you, if you love lit literature, if you love novels, and you're and you like fantasy novels in particular, I highly recommend it. I mean, it is it's a riot. It's it's carnivalesque, as as it's often described. It, it's uh, bizarre in in all all the best ways, I think. But without spoiling it. At the heart of the story is this account of a master who's a novelist, who's writing a story about Pilate. And what we find at the end of the story is that, in truth, not just in the fiction, Pilate is bound, waiting to see Jesus again. He's, he's kind of caught in this, this hellscape, this dreamland between life and death longing to finish his conversation with Jesus. And a novelist's story becomes a way in which God is bringing about Pilate's redemption. I, I want to read just, just a line to you right toward the end of, of the story in which the master and Margarita, who's his, his lover, are being led by the devil into the mountains where Pilate is. And it turns out the devil is in fact working with God here, not against him. As I said, it's a carnival. It's a, it's a bazaar. But 
Listen to what the devil says about what Pilate's condition is as he longs to re re reconnect with Jesus. He says, they overhear him talking. And then Volan speaks up to explain what's happening. For about 2,000 years, he has been sitting on this platform and sleeping. But when the full moon comes, as you see, he is tormented by insomnia. It torments not only him, but also his guardian, the dog. If it is true that cowardice is the most grievous vice, then the dog at least is not guilty of it. What is he saying? asked Margarita. He says one and the same thing, Roland replied. He says that even the moon gives him no peace and that his is a bad job. That is what he always says when he is not asleep. And when he sleeps, he dreams one and the same thing. There is a path of moonlight, and he wants to walk down it and talk with the prisoner Ha-Nazri, which is a way of referring to Jesus of Nazareth. Because as he insists, he never finished what he was saying that time long ago on the 14th day of the spring month of Nisan. But alas, for some reason, he man never manages to get on to this path. And no one comes to him then there's no help for it. He must talk to himself. And so this is, this is the condition that Pilate finds himself in. He's caught between life and death in this dream world, hellish, nightmarish world, in which he's longing to encounter Jesus and finish his conversation with Jesus, but cannot find his way to Jesus. He's looking for the path and can't find it. And I'll come back to that again at the very end. But I, I, want, I want to suggest that like Pilate in this story, all of us are called to a conversation with Jesus. A conversation that at first always fails for one reason or another. We, In fact, our conversion that takes place over the course of our lives, our conversion into the life of God, our conversion into sharing his life and sharing his nature is also a conversation, a, a, a back and forth in which we speak and are spoken to, in which we listen and are listened to. And, and at the heart of who we are, at the heart of what we are, is this desire to question and be questioned, to answer and be answered, to let ourselves be questioned, to let ourselves be answered, so that we can really, truly hear and really, truly be heard and, and be fully known. And, and it's in that conversation with Jesus that, that we come to be known. We come to be heard and to know that we're heard. Pilate's conversation in the gospel, with that Matthew's, in Matthew's account, Pilate's conversation fails, I think, for at least three reasons. And I, I want to talk about those three, although I'm, I'm sure there are more reasons. But I, I think a close reading of this text shows us that it fails first because he, unlike the Magi at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, does not recognize Jesus for who he is. Notice in the passage we read, when Jesus and Pilate first confront each other, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? The Magi at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel know that he's the king of the Jews, and they come to worship him. They come to honor him. And so I think right away we're struck by the ways in which Pilate doesn't see what they saw. He doesn't know what they knew. They were kings. They were rulers. They were, they were men of power, like Pilate, the governor. But they saw what he couldn't see. He couldn't see what they did see. And I think that presses us to ask why. 
Why did they recognize Jesus from afar off when Pilate couldn't see him up close? Why did they recognize Jesus by following a star, a single sign, when Pilate had all of these signs and Christ is fully present to him? And, and I think that a crucial difference is the Magi come from faraway lands. They come to Israel to honor the king of the Jews. They come into the presence of a child. And they do not have a sense of the ways in which his kingdom threatens theirs. Although, if you read T.S. Eliot's poem about the journey of the Magi, it's easy to imagine that at some point they start to realize that, that Jesus is truly king of kings and not only king of the Jews. But Pilate encounters not a child but a rival, or at least someone who is known as a rival. And that all utterly alters the way he engages Jesus. And so he questions whether or not Jesus is in fact the king people claim him to be and the king that Jesus himself claims to be. And when Pilate has Jesus crucified, he does have this title placarded above Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews. So there seems to be some way in which Pilate senses a threat in Jesus. And even if we would say he misunderstands that threat, he thinks it's a, a threat to him in a way it is, it's, it's not exactly. He's not entirely wrong. There is a way in which Jesus is a threat. And, and I think that in our conversation with Jesus, we have to come, all of us have to come to terms with the ways in which all of God's promises are also threats. They're not the threats we fear they are. Out of, out of the ways in which sin distorts our imagination, we often fear that God is against us in ways that he's not. And ultimately, of course, God is only for us. But precisely because he's for us, there are ways that he's against us. He's against us in the way that a physician is against the illness that's in a patient. He's against us in the way that a parent is against the disorder or confusion that's in the heart of a child. He's against us in the way that a friend is against the the lie that someone they love has come to believe about themselves. So there, we, we all, I think, experience this. There, there's a time in which what is needed is divisiveness. What is needed is the wounds of a friend, which are faithful. What is needed is the surgeon's knife. And there are ways in which precisely because God is always only for us, he is against us for our good. And, and Pilate, whether he realizes it or not, is sensing this and because he's confused about what it means, he can't recognize Jesus for who he truly is, and vice versa. Because he doesn't recognize Jesus for who he truly is, he can't quite make sense of the ways in which Jesus is for him and the ways in which Jesus is against him. The, the second thing that I want to point out is that Pilate, unlike his wife, can no longer hear the voice of God in his heart. And that's why his conversation, this first conversation, fails. And I think, again, in general, that holds for all of us. That if we're not careful, we become so caught up in, in living life the way we've been told to live it. We get so caught up in being who we think we have to be and doing what we think we have to do that we lose touch with our own hearts and, and therefore lose touch with the voice of God in the depths of our hearts. And 
that's what she says to him, or a message she sends to him, is that I've suffered much because of this dream that I've had. And, and I, I do think there's a way in which we, we need to be in touch with our depths. We need to be in touch with what is no longer conscious or explicit to, our, to us anymore if we're going to hear what God is saying. And Pilate seems to have lost touch with his own heart. He seems to have lost touch with the depths of himself. And I think one way of talking about this is to say that he can still hear the voice of his conscience, if only faintly, but he can no longer hear the voice of his heart, much less the voice of God speaking in his heart. And even when his wife speaks to him and warns him not to, not to do this, not to, not to make a judgment against Jesus, he can't hear it. He can't recognize it for what it is. And, and I think this should sober us without belaboring the point. I think all of us should pray for God to keep our hearts sensitive and to keep us sensitive to our hearts so that we, we don't lose touch with what's going on in the depths of us, what the Spirit is, is whispering to us, what, what those nudges and prompts and prods and pulls that are, are hardly felt at all and, and won't be felt if, if we become numb or indifferent to our own inner, deep inner conversation. Third, Pilate, in his conversation with Jesus, this first conversation, his, it fails because he's unlike the blind men who earlier in, in the gospel, just before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. And he says, what do you want? And they say, Lord, let our eyes be open. This, this is a story from Matthew 20. Jesus is passing through. It's Jericho on his way to Jerusalem where he will be betrayed. And two blind men cry out from the roadside. Once they hear that Jesus is passing by, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They're quieted by the crowd and they cry out louder, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus hears them, turns to them, asks what they want, and they say, Lord, let our eyes be open. Jesus is moved with compassion, and he heals them. Now, and I want you to notice how different this is from what Pilate does. And, and there's a key line in, in the gospel passage I read at the beginning, and that is that when Pilate tries to reason with the crowd, and they push back, they, they, they cry out all the more, just like these two blind men cry out all the more. It says that Pilate saw that nothing could be done and that a riot was beginning. And, and I, I'm struck, like literally blown back by that line. He saw that nothing could be done. And I think that is the sign of someone who's lost touch with their heart and lost touch with the voice of God in the depths of their heart and someone who's lost touch with the fact that God's ways are not our ways, and that our ways cannot bring about the good that God wants to bring about in the world. It, it's the sign of someone who's lost the imagination for an alternative to common sense, an alternative to the way the world normally works. Pilate is here just being politically savvy. 
he is unable to see alternatives because he's so good at his job of maintaining order. And this, this is a hard truth, but it's, it's, I think, a critical one. I, I don't know if I can articulate it carefully enough. It's a, it's a hard needle to thread. But there's something about those of us who grow up and take on responsibility in the world and have some sense of weight that we have to bear for the sake of others. We become accustomed to being the people who keep order, who maintain order. And if we're not careful, we will maintain order even when the Spirit is moving to bring God's order rather than the order we have made. We will resist what God is doing in the name of avoiding riots, in the name of avoiding disorder, in the name of avoiding disruption and chaos. And I think you don't need me to point out to you that I think that is in many ways what's happening right now in our country around issues of race and police brutality, political corruption. There's an instinct in a lot of us, a lot of our leaders and a lot of us who are leaders to, like Pilate, think in ways that are savvy, in ways that make common sense, but don't make gospel sense. We, we don't see any alternative, and so we resort to violence, either physical violence or rhetorical violence. We don't see any alternative, and so we allow ourselves to be reduced to this position or that position on this issue or that issue. Like we, we, we lose a kind of peripheral vision, a kind of big picture perspective. And, and our vision gets narrowed down to, to what seems expedient or possible. But with God, all things are possible. And, and the fundamental reason that Pilate's, or a fundamental reason that Pilate's conversation with Jesus fails is that he no longer can see those possibilities. And we need to be like the blind men who cry out, acknowledging that we can't see them. Lord, have mercy on us. We can't see. And, and I'm struck by the fact that they call him son of David. And I, I wish I had time to unpack this. I mean, think about what this means. He is the son of David. Not only is he a God who is not ashamed to be associated with David, David who's the murderer, David who's the adulterer, David who is a horrific father in so many ways, a David who in spectacular ways reaches out to God but fails all the people around him or, or virtually all the people around him and whose life ends with his mouth filled with godly advice, Solomon trusts the Lord, and bitterness, Solomon avenge me on my enemies. God is not only the God of David, He's the son of David. God is so humble and so patient and so creative that he can put himself at the mercy of even his unfaithful children. And a God like that is a God who is never constrained by what we think is possible, by what seems to us expedient or what seems to us like common sense. This, this is the accusation that's brought against the prophets and against Jesus, that, it, that what they're saying is impossible. And we need to be people who 
confess, yes, we believe in the God who does the impossible. We believe in the God who raises the dead. We believe in the God who opens the eyes of those who cannot see and opens the ears of those who cannot hear. And without being naive, without being superstitious, without being pretentious, without fabricating anything in optimism, we can live in hope and say we refuse to be constrained by common sense. We refuse to be constrained by our experiences or what seems politically expedient. We refuse to think that narrowly because we believe that Jesus, the one we're having this conversation with, is the one who can open our eyes to what we couldn't see otherwise. And so, last word, come back to the novel. What happens is they're, this, they're led, the master and Margarita are led up into the mountain where Pilate is and told that the master can finish his novel with one line and it needs to be a line to Pilate. And that word to Pilate will free him. And this is what, this is what happens. The master seemed to have been expecting this as he stood motionless and looked at the seated procurator, at, at the governor, Pilate. He cupped his hands to his mouth and cried out so that the echo leaped over the unpeopled and unforested mountains. You're free. You're free. He's waiting for you. And that's the word that I want to share with you this morning. You're free. You're free. He's waiting for you. And go crying the, the prayer of those two blind men. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Open our eyes so that we can see. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.